2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 1 through 6. In honor of God's word, would you stand with me as I read this to you? I, Paul, myself, entreat you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. I, who am humble when face to face with you, but bold toward you when I am away. I beg of you that when I'm present, I may not have to show boldness with such confidence as I count on showing against some who suspect us of walking according to the flesh. For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. Amen. This is God's word. You can be seated. So up to this point in the letter, Paul's mostly been addressing the, the repentant Corinthians, the Corinthians that received that letter that we don't have a copy of. It was actually the second letter. This is the, uh, the third letter, but we don't have the second one. But apparently in that letter, he hit them hard with uh, problems they were having in the church and where they weren't conforming to the life of Christ. And so uh, now from this point, from chapter 12 through 13, he's not going to be addressing the repentant Corinthians, but the unrepentant Corinthians. So he's going to get a little tougher. And we often quote this passage about spiritual warfare. And it, and it is applicable, but I think as, you, as we get into this, you'll see we're really kind of taking it out of context because Paul's talking about how he's going to deal with the false teachers. He's relating that to, to the false teachers. He's telling them how he and his team fight spiritual battles, and they're in one against these false teachers who are distorting the gospel. And that... He's telling them he's ready to deal with the unrepentant ones who are being divisive and undermining the gospel. So verse one again, I, Paul, myself entreat you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. I who am humble when face to face with you, but bold toward you when I am away. So in, in the ESV translation, they leave out the first word for some reason. I'm not sure why, but they left out uh, this little word, day, and that word means, it's a connective word. Sometimes it's translated as now, and, so, therefore, moreover, and similar words. And in this case, they, they've left it out completely. But if we look back to the previous sentence and see what the connection is, we see Paul's writing about this surpassing grace of God that's inexpressible. And uh, we spoke about that quite a bit last week about how inexpressible the gift of God is. And that's why I think maybe therefore would be a good connecting word because of that surpassing grace of God, therefore, I'm making this appeal to you Corinthians. The word Paul chose for the word that we have in ESV, entreat, or some other translations say appeal, 
is the word parakaleo, and we've seen that a number of times in Paul's letters. We see it in the Gospels in another form related to the Holy Spirit. It's that compound word that means to, to come alongside someone, to stand beside someone, and speak out. And it's because of this indescribable gift of grace that Paul calls out to the Corinthians by two wonderful attributes of Christ that express that grace, his meekness and his gentleness. Meekness is power under control. Sometimes we think of meekness as mousy and kind of, but not at all. Moses was said to be the meekest man on earth, and he wasn't a little mouse by any means. He had great power, but it was under control of his relationship with his God. The rare time when we see him misuse that power is the second striking of the rock for which he wasn't allowed to enter the promised land. It worked. The water came forth, but God dealt with him about it. Moses' humility was seen from the very beginning when he confessed himself incapable of the task that God had put before him. But his power was seen in his complete submission to God in whatever God asked him to do. And that's why he could prophesy that the Messiah would be a person like him. Imagine if, if Jesus, who has the authority to command angels, remember Jesus said, if I wanted, I could call 12 legions of angels right now. Legion is 6,000. What, that's 72,000 angels. One, one angel could destroy the army of the Syrians. What, what would 72,000 angels be able to do? That's power, okay? He had that power. What if he didn't control that power and submission to God? What if he used that power in a carnal way? You know, the temptation in the wilderness. Boom, Satan is no more. Pharisees attacking him, boom, they're on their knees asking for, for mercy, right? Or the Romans trying to crucify him, boom, the Romans are on the cross instead. But no, Jesus was meek and he was gentle and he was submitted to his Father. Not my will, but yours be done. Father, forgive them. They know what they do. That's meekness. That's power. That's also gentleness. What would you have done if you had the authority of Jesus? God help us, let his character be expressed in us because we are to be like him. I, I think gentleness is a, an underappreciated attribute. It's a fruit of the spirit. It's listed in Galatians 5 as one of the fruits of the spirit of God in us. Forcefulness can change a, a person's behavior, but it doesn't change the heart. Gentleness is a harder route, but the only one that's gonna really reach the heart of others. Even tough love can be expressed via the gentleness of Christ. Paul tells them that when he's present, he expresses the humility of Christ. But when he writes them, he expresses that boldness that comes out. He may be referring to that, that letter of correction that Titus delivered. 
It's somewhat ironic, though, as, as Paul's humility is probably something the false teachers were deriding. They were the ones who were saying his bodily presence is weak. And so he's saying, yeah, like Jesus, meek and gentle. Roman culture saw humility as weakness. So by appealing to the humility and gentleness of Christ, he was diffusing their point of attack. Jesus didn't present himself as someone with a big ego. Thus, Paul's humility and gentleness wasn't a weakness, but a godly attribute. Verse 2, I beg of you that when I'm present, I may not have to show the boldness with such confidence as I count on showing against some who suspect us of walking according to the flesh. Paul wants the Corinthians to disassociate with the false teachers so that he doesn't have to discipline them with the one who's walking after the flesh. Accusing someone of what you're guilty of is, is typical, isn't it? Typical of those who live for the world. Meekness and gentleness do not need to hinder justice. Remember, meekness is submission to God, and he may see it necessary to execute justice, which is another righteous attribute. Paul was ready to be God's instrument for that, if necessary, but he would rather have come with gentleness. Paul was ready to be God's instrument at, at God's leading because God disciplines those he loves. His gentleness limits that discipline to what we are able to bear. Nevertheless, God's love will bring whatever is necessary to cause us to reconsider our ways. That is meekness and grace. It's gentleness toward the flock when the shepherd smites the wolf that would devour a lamb. Paul's not talking about a physical attack, but of bold spiritual discipline for the sake of the flock. Verse three, for though we walk after the flesh, we're not waging war according to the flesh. We live in these, these fallen earthly bodies. They get sick. They have involuntary reactions. And one day they will die. And that's what he means by walking in the flesh. Though we walk in the flesh, though we're physical beings, though we're humans. However, Christ, Christians, I'm sorry, Christians do not fight spiritual enemies or physical enemies with guns or knives or fists or even intellectual powers. There may be a time for physically defending the flock against violence, but the issue in this passage is spiritual warfare. And that's what really matters. That's the war that matters. The wars of nations come and go. The battles with neighbors are soon forgotten. It's the spiritual that's eternal. What's behind this thing in our culture of abortion at any stage in spiritual? It's, spirit, it's a spiritual issue. Why are children being confused about their gender? What's this push for a worldwide government? Many of these issues in politics in our day are just spiritual issues. The most important thing to bring about change is to change hearts, and only Jesus Christ can change a heart. I've watched the change of the mind following the change of heart that comes when a person accepts Christ. 
When the word of God touches the heart, our minds conform to that of Jesus. There was a popular t-shirt years ago that read, real men fight on their knees. In other words, real men don't use their fists, they use prayer. There's a cosmic war for the souls of men and women. And we are born by nature on the losing team. But when the word of God takes root in our hearts, we begin to side with righteousness. The way we see the world is corrected and we see it as it really is. The next verses tell us how to participate with God in this battle to free those who have been taken captive by sin. Verse four, for the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. So first, Paul tells us what we don't fight with. We don't fight with fists or even with our own intellect. He told them in the first letter that they had witnessed his preaching to be a demonstration of the spirit and of power. That kind of real authority will silence his critics and reveal their immaturity. That power is not a physical attack, but something even more powerful. Jesus told Peter to put away his sword. He told Pilate his kingdom was not of this world. If it was, his servants would fight. I remember when one time when someone, uh, years, many years ago, I had a business and I'd rented something to someone and, and it didn't work for them and I plugged it in and showed them it does work, you know, uh, I'll let you rent it another day. And they got so mad, they were irate, they got right in my face screaming at me. And you know, sometimes when that happens, the Spirit of God just takes over and you realize it's not about you. It's something going on within them. And to respond in kind would just be to, to make it worse and not to help the person or yourself in that situation. But that meekness and gentleness of Christ is the way to, to forward. Our weapons are the same as those our saviors used, the word of God and prayer. In Matthew chapter four, in Luke chapter four, when Jesus was attacked by the devil, he counterattacked with scripture. Satan tried to use scripture too, but Jesus would counter his false use of scripture with more scripture. But to do what Jesus and Paul did, we have to be familiar with the word. We need to hide it in our hearts. The word prompted by the Holy Spirit is the divine power that can destroy strongholds. I watched it happen in someone's life just last week. The fruit of the Spirit broke through the walls that they had of ritual. They'd always looked at something one way and they thought it was God's way until the fruit of the Spirit just knocked that wall over. And they were crying, realizing how wrong they'd been and and how wonderful God's way is versus man's way. Strongholds are defined in the next verse. They're, they're what keeps the, the sinner captive. Every fortified city had strongholds, bulwarks, that were particularly impregnable. Strongholds reference the central arguments that fortify the opponent's message. 
their arguments and opinions that we form in this fallen world. Here's one popular one today right out of the pit of hell. If it doesn't harm anyone and no one finds out, how can it be wrong? Or how about this one? Everyone does it, so what's the big deal? Pride is a stronghold, for the prideful won't accept the need for a savior. I mean, I could go on and on, and the reason I can is because all those justifications have gone through my mind at one time or another, brought up by my flesh. For these false teachers, the strongholds were pride and religious dogma. They are all justifications for giving into the flesh and ignoring our holy creator who gave us life and breath and everything that we have. Strongholds are lies that keep us from being who God created us to be and keep us thinking that we're in charge of our own life. Until we see the harm they're doing to our lives, we won't attempt to break out of those strongholds. D.A. Carson explains, Paul's language of destruction here is not merely about winning arguments or debates. He means something far more. His weapons destroy the way that people think, demolish their sinful thought patterns, the mental structures by which they live their lives in rebellion against God. Verse 5, we destroy arguments and every lofty opinion against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. Paul's been using a number of military terms in this passage, weapons, warfare, strongholds. And in this verse, he uses one that's kind of hidden, lofty opinion. It's a high thing. It's a high place, a position of advantage in warfare. So by stacking these terms, Paul portrays his ministry as a mighty conquering army that overcomes every opposing force. He doesn't use smooth rhetoric like his opponents do. He didn't have a big charismatic flair. Rather, his weapons have divine power to lay those carnal means of man low. We, here in this passage, we destroy arguments, refers to Paul and his team, the, those who ministered with him. But just as our warfare refers to the battle that Paul's team is fighting with the, the false teachers, yet it applies to us also, the battle in which we fight. So we, in this verse, can apply to us as well because God's no respecter of persons. Paul's team of ministers destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God. If we become familiar with God's word, yielded to his Holy Spirit, then we will do the same. Paul's probably referring to those arguments and opinions of, of those false teachers, and yet we face the same in our old nature and from unbelievers, sometimes even from within the church. Just as Jesus answered the attacks of his enemies, so we too can look to the word and the guidance of the Holy Spirit to help us destroy arguments against the knowledge of God. That's, just, that's not just to know there is a God, but to know his nature as revealed in scripture. One stronghold is this distorted view of God in the Bible that so many people have. 
Some see him as this angry God in the, of the Old Testament who's mean-spirited and just wants everybody to do what he wants. Others see him as a God who is only love. Those are the two extremes. Either you know, the world sees him as this God who's too mean and demanding or this God who's love and everyone's going to go to heaven no matter what they live like. The knowledge of the true God, the biblical God, is a God who is love but also a God whose justice is perfect and holy. He's gracious, but he's also righteous, and he cannot let evil go unpunished. You know, before Jory came to Christ, uh, the brother that did the call to worship, he had lots of arguments against the knowledge of God. He, he was like a, a, an evangelist for atheism. Kindness and prayer broke down the walls. Hallelujah. It took down the lofty opinions and began to soften his heart. And he realized his thinking was completely wrong. But first the heart had to be touched by that gentleness of Christ. Brother Zach came, before he came to Christ, he saw himself as an enlightened teacher. But the gospel humbled him and transformed him from thinking at many disciplines to the one who is the way, the truth, and the life. But that's the beginning of the work of the Lord in us, that heart change that results in a mind change, and then we need to learn to take every thought captive to the word of God, to obey Christ. While Paul may have been speaking of these false teachers' points of doctrine, it can apply to our thoughts that are ungodly as well. Taking thoughts captive is a lifelong part of the battle. I think everybody can say amen, right? I mean, even as we're singing the songs, I'm thinking about the sermon and then my mind wanders off somewhere I shouldn't have gone and I'm, take it captive, make it bow before Christ. I like to use the uh, one thing, Everybody needs a, their own tools. Well, one of my tools is hot air balloons. You know, when you take that thing and go, and that flame goes up, right? When those thoughts come into my head, I like to pull that lever. Man, watch it fry. You know, I'm making it obedient to Christ. Thank you, Lord. Lord, help us to do that. We first learn to recognize those thoughts and to learn what triggers those thoughts, and then we avoid the, the triggers. <laughs> when the pattern starts, we turn to the Lord in prayer and refuse to go down that old rut that was probably formed before we came to Christ. Our mind had this pathway that we thought was, before we knew Christ, this pathway was a way to pleasure, right? And so the, in our mind, this rut was formed, whether it's a, an addiction of some kind or uh, some relationship or whatever, this pattern forms. And we recognize as soon as we start to go down that old rut, we need to start praising God. Pull that lever or whatever you need, whatever imagery you need to make that thought captive to Christ and not go down that path. Praising God for the freedom we have to choose not to dwell on the thought. You know, before it was like, oh boy, I like this thought. I like to play with this thought. But when we come to Christ, there's conviction. 
and we know we need to bring it to Christ. So taking it captive, not going down that path, you have to, may have to do it a hundred times a day, but the more faithful you are to do it, the easier it gets. The Holy Spirit will help us turn from sinful thoughts to praising God that we do not have to let those minds, those thoughts stay in our minds. Before we couldn't help it, now we have a choice. It's our choice whether we'll entertain those thoughts or not. Realize that you're being obedient when you do that. Don't fall under condemnation because it started. Martin Luther said you, you can't, you can't stop birds from flying over your head, but you can keep them from building a nest in your hair, right? You can't help the thought racing, just passing through your mind, but you can capture the thought before it starts to do the damage. So recognize when you capture that thought, you're doing the will of God. You're being conformed into the image of Christ. Don't beat yourself up over it. Praise God that he's given you the ability to take that thought captive. The Holy Spirit will help us turn from sinful thoughts to praising God so that we don't have to let those, because we don't have to let those thoughts stay in our mind. Realize that that is obedience. We replace the evil thought with godly thoughts or songs of praise. Memorizing scripture that counters your, we all have weak areas, and memorizing thoughts that counter those weak areas, memorizing scripture that counters those, those weak areas is the way that Jesus did battle. Could anything be more wonderful than to have every thought experience captive obedience to Christ? Could we wish anything better for others than that their thoughts be captive? To Christ obedient to him remember that Paul is saying this is what he's doing for the Corinthians that means that if we're in the spirit we can wage war for our brothers and sisters or that we might receive the same help from our elders the word shared tears down the strongholds when we let it take hold in our hearts I've watched many of you slowly being transformed by listening to the preaching of the word and I can tell you stories about people who who came to attended wayside and then moved on but before they left they confessed the word had changed the way they think it had changed them from nominal believers to lovers of God from living for self to wanting to be of service to God and to his kingdom the war was won in their lives by the power of the word no wonder the author of Hebrews refers to the word as living and acting, active and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of the soul and spirit of joints and marrow, discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. In Ephesians, Paul calls the word the sword of the spirit. Uh, you know, I'm really grateful to Jory for choosing to preach through Psalm 119 because every verse in that longest chapter of the Bible reminds us of the Word of God and how necessary it is, how essential it is in the Christian's life. God has chosen language to communicate with us his nature and our need. The Bible is our source of truth, a history book focused on the way God brought about salvation to fallen man. 
as Joy explained so well in the call to worship. It's our source of comfort, guidance, and discernment. What a privilege today that we can carry it with us wherever we go. Uh, we just, uh, in our movie night, we watched this special on the, on the Bible. Um, I can't remember what, what was the source of that? Logos and literacy. And it, it, it was at the Bible Museum. And they walked through the effect of the history of the Bible, but also how over time it had affected our world. It had transformed our world, really. Brought about science as we know it. So at the end, you know, they were explaining how the Bible went from, you know, from oral to, to written to, to parchment to uh, in scrolls and then to book form and then the Gutenberg Press and then mass publication, and at the end, they showed a cell phone. And now everybody can have multiple translations on your phone and, and read in different languages. You know, we're working on our, our Through the Bible Daily Devotional in five languages now. And anybody, any, anywhere in the world, can, if they have a phone, can access it. It's a, it's a wonderful thing. It's an amazing thing. So I hope you all have a Bible app on your phone. If you don't, Bible is a great app. There's a lot of them. It's translated on almost every language on the planet because God so loved the world that he gave his son, and the son is the living word made flesh. Jesus' parable of the soils teaches us that the word received is the source of fruit in our lives. Verse 6, being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. So this passage is warning the Corinthians that Paul and his team mean business. They're going to show up. They're jealous for the purity of the Corinthian church. They're not coming for a physical takedown of the false teacher, but they're coming with something much more powerful, the word of God. Once the Corinthians have fully complied with the word, Paul and his team are going to come and punish those who are disobedient. You know, in the Old Testament, Elijah confronted the prophets of Baal and when God sent the fire from heaven and consumed the sacrifice and the water and even the stones of the altar, Elijah single-handedly slaughtered the prophets of Baal. Well, Paul wasn't threatening to do that, but he was declaring that he had as much power and authority to deal with those who were misleading them. If you lived in Corinth and heard this part of the letter, you'd think twice about whose side you were on. They had no doubt seen the miracles from the hands of the Apostle Paul. His warning would have been taken very seriously. There have been times when we have to do the same here. Spiritual boundaries have to be maintained for the protection of hearts and minds of the congregation. It's rare, but it does happen. And it also happens in ways unseen in all of our lives. God disciplines those he loves. And that's because he's our good father who wants to protect us from the harm we would incur if we went our own way. Sometimes he causes us pain, so we will not cause ourselves an even greater pain. May our weakness and gentleness always make way for the word of God to demolish the strongholds in our own lives. Amen.
and by the grace of God be the channel through which we destroy the strongholds in others' lives as well. May we take every thought captive and make it obedient to Christ for our good, for his glory, and may we encourage others to do the same. Amen? Amen. Jill, would you lead us in a closing song? And then I'll give the benediction.